When I was 24, I was finding my feet. I'd moved from Montreal to Toronto. I worked two jobs to make ends meet. My full-time job was selling for a corporate communication agency. My part-time was selling suits at Tip Top. Within a year, I'd start my first agency with three partners and set off on an entrepreneurial journey that's still a work in progress. I chased my dreams with ambition and hard work, opportunity and good fortune, but most importantly, good health. I wonder how my life would have changed at age 24. You know, at a time I'm not thinking about mortality or a disease, it could change everything. If I woke up one day and suddenly there was some numbness in my feet, and it wasn't from wearing shoes that were too tight or staying out too long in the cold, or even the pins and needles you sometimes get when you've got a, a thigh crossed over a calf, but it was the first signs that we would turn out to be MS, a condition that would affect my brain and spinal cord, causing a wide range of potential symptoms, including problems with vision, arm and leg movement, sensation or balance, even at times death. How would I have reacted? How would the course of my life changed? This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Peter Wiseman, and he has MS. He's also a wheelchair athlete, he's a photographer, he's an advocate for people with disabilities. If you're listening to his brother's show that I aired recently, he's also a hero to a lot of people. Peter Wiseman, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks for having me. Listen, we've never met in person. I look forward to the day, but we've got to know each other through LinkedIn. And I've always been a big fan of your intellectual and artistic capabilities. We're going to get into that because you would never imagine somebody that's involved with tax is also going to be such an accomplished photographer. But first, I wanted to learn more about you. When I talked to Eric about his upbringing, he talked about a house where your mom left you at an early age, your dad, a byproduct Russian immigrants, very physical in how he disciplined people. It was a tough place to be. I was the youngest of four. And uh, I was four when my mom left. And I don't know if Eric explained the story behind that, but she had been in sanitarium for, I think, three years with TB. And that's where my father met her. They got engaged. She got out, got married. And the next thing she knew, she had four kids and she had never really had her youth. And she loved art. But in the um, in the mid, mid to late 60s, I guess that's not what uh, housewives did. My dad wasn't ready for that. So, um, so that, that's how my mother ended up leaving. She had a lot of regrets afterwards, but, um, as to how that played out, but, and and I'm not trying to defend her. It was, it was an important life choice for her. Um, and then, you know, my father was, he wasn't a successful business person. He started off very successful. He was in the family fuel oil business and they were doing very well. Uh, and then they sold the business. And after that, we had money, built a big house uh, in Toronto, but he he wasn't a good business person. So uh, eventually that money started disappearing. We had to move from the house. So there's a lot of stress he had. And when he got angry, uh, the strap would come out, which a lot of my friends say, you know, that's that's just the way things were back then. And to be honest, for me, that was the worst of it. Um, my siblings... They had it worse than I did. I got spanked. I got um, a little nervous every time my dad came home. I wasn't sure if he's going to be a good mood, good mood or not. Um, but he wasn't a naturally abusive person. 
he had frustrations that unfortunately he took out the wrong way. Do you think he ever saw the kids as the reason why his wife left? There was some that his tension or anger towards you was the fact that, you know, this, this someone that he met obviously was deeply in love and chose art and a different community for what he could offer? That's a great question. I've never really thought about that. And if I, if I could ask him, I would, but uh, I don't think that was, I don't think that was why he was frustrated. Um, and I don't even think he was really frustrated with kids. I think he was frustrated with his life. Um, my mother left not because of the kids, but because of him not allowing her the freedom. And, uh, and she had this, this burning passion. My mother lived her life completely as an artist. She worked at um, CBC as a receptionist, eventually met, um, met someone who she ended up living with, and she eventually became a film researcher on the Fifth Estate uh, TV show on CBC. But in the background, more in the foreground for her, was her art. And it dates back from before I was born. She was internationally acclaimed. She was never commercially successful. But, you know, if people search Claire Wiseman on the Internet, you'll find a lot of information about her. So, in fact, when she passed away, she looked like one of the figures in her artwork because her artworks, they're all nudes. She wasn't I didn't she wasn't nude. She was under the covers when she passed away. I was there. But her face and her body looked like her artwork. And I thought to myself, wow. And I think I said this at her um, memorial sort of memorial at her house that she became her artwork so her artwork really was her that was who she was she was going to be stifled and that wouldn't have been good for her you know your brother learns to cope with the trauma of the household starting with hash and then increasingly more and more drugs and you know he's very entrepreneurial so he found a way to finance his growing habit what did you do to to cope, because what what I understand doing my research, you were a very gifted athlete. I wouldn't, I'm not, you know, gifted is a bit um, a bit generous. I was a competitive athlete. I played tennis. Um, I played baseball pretty competitively, uh, hardball and softball. Uh, I golfed eventually when I about eighteen. When I was turned eighteen, um, I started golfing. Those were th- and those were things I liked to do. I embraced them. I didn't get fixated on them. They didn't define me. And I'm glad because, you know, with what's happened to me, it puts those things in perspective. I, I get very, I'll say concerned about people who define themselves by athletics, especially if they're not pros. Because I have some friends, for example, who all they talk about is how far they ran today and how their kids are do, doing personal training and, and things like that. And I think, you know what, if something like this, what happened to me, happens to them, how are they going to define themselves? Right. So I, I, I didn't look at sports that way at the time, but I looked at it as something fun. I looked at it, I did, I was pretty good at it, at the sports I played and I enjoyed them. So Peter, instead of studying the arts, I mean, you're a gifted photographer. I encourage people to follow you on LinkedIn because you share one of your pieces every week now. You go into accounting. I have to believe given who your mom is and her passion for arts, that must, like, what brought you down that path? My mother's mother. She moved in with us after my mother left. So I grew up with my father and my mother's mother. She was very interested in the arts. Her sister was a pianist for the National Ballet. One of her sister's daughters was um, was a ballerina in the National Ballet. Her sister's son uh, was David Cronenberg, 
who's a well-known film producer. Her brother was the first violinist of the Toronto Symphony. So there's a lot of art in my history. You know, I went through a lot of financial woes with my father not being a good business person. And, you know, he'll use the, he used the word failure all the time, which I really, if you try something, you're not a failure. So I went from riches to rags. It was horrible. You know, I, I tell people it was a, a character builder. I worked my way through high school and through university after university or and during all that time I was paying rent to my father for, for uh, having a place to stay. I didn't want to go through that for the rest of my life. And I thought, I love photography, but what are the chances that I'm going to be able to have security with photography? I applied to, to Ryerson for fine arts and photography, and I applied to York. And Ryerson didn't accept me, so that made my decision even easier. And, uh, and I figured, I don't know anything about business. I don't know anything about security. Maybe a, a guidance counselor once told me, you know, accounting, accountants learn about business. So I figured, okay, I'll, I'll go into accounting. Uh, I remember, you know, I would go to these parties at my mother's house and you'd have all these famous authors and various artists. You know, I, I, to say the names, I'd be name dropping. So I'm not going to do that, but I'd go there and my mother would introduce my brother who, who was a painter. My sister, one of my sisters who was an actress, my other sister who sang but was a teacher. And then she'd get to me and it's like, oh, here's my son, the accountant. I tell people I have the only Jewish mother who was upset when her kids said he was going to be an accountant. But I knew that accounting wasn't for me. I have this creative streak and I couldn't, I couldn't stifle it. Sort of like my mother, right? I couldn't stifle it. Um, so I went into tax. In tax, people need you and you add value. And on top of it, you have to be creative. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Joining me is Peter Wiseman. He's a tax specialist, wheelchair athlete, living with MS for many, many years. And he's an advocate for people with, he doesn't like to say disabilities, but unique abilities. Tax accounting. You declared it to be a creative profession. Well, you know, I was in advertising, so I'm curious as how tax and accounting can be creative. Tax is not filling out tax forms. Tax is listening to people. And tax is understanding what keeps them awake at night and how you can I can use my skills to help them sleep better. When I meet with a client, they're often surprised because I spend a lot of time on the soft stuff. I don't talk tax. Find out how the kids are, how the parents are, what the, you know, what how they grew up. And they, they're often surprised and I'm asking a lot of personal questions. They're also quite comfortable. And I tell them, once I know what we need to build, I've got a whole toolkit of tax tools, but I'm not going to pull it out and just pull out tools because I have them. Let's find out what we want to build and we'll build it. And that's what I do in tax. I do a lot of estate planning, which is a very sensitive topic. It comes with difficulties where you know some children are not going to be treated the same as others for whatever the reasons are. And if people don't deal with that upfront, what they do in their will, it's their last legacy. You can be the greatest parent all your life. And if you do something that your kids don't understand and you don't talk to them about it first, that becomes what they remember. And it's unfortunate. I've seen a lot of uh, siblings have conflict after parents pass away and a lot of siblings being upset with their parents because of what was done. So I try to help my clients avoid falling into that trap. And, uh, and for people in, outside of the estate planning world, when someone comes to me because CRA is auditing them, they're really scared. It's like, 
if you go to, if you've got your health or if you go to a doctor, you're scared, right? Um, if you've got an issue, if you got your health and you get a letter from CRA, uh, that's the next thing to be scared about. So I view people coming to me in those situations as being scared, just like I was when I went, started dealing with the medical world. And I try to be compassionate about it. So I've been lucky because I've been able to put food on the table. I do something I really like doing. And I'm able to pursue photography as a hobby. And it's also therapy. You know, we all need something to get out and do. And I, I call my photography phototherapy, right? I get out behind the camera. I forget everything else. You know, I, I use a scooter to get around. So I can't get into the woods and necessarily get those pictures I really like to get. Uh, I sort of I sort of say I'm on the beaten path instead of off the beaten path when I do my photography, but it gets me out and I love it. Uh, when we go on holidays, my kids go crazy because I've got to stop everywhere I see something I want to take a picture of. Let's wind back to age 24, I think, is when you first experienced some numbness. I want to understand that healthcare didn't treat you right in terms of what they what they thought was going on. When when I uh, I was just almost 30. I had been out fishing the day before, the day before with my brother and father. And the next morning, my wife had been away for work. The next morning, I got out of bed and I stepped on the floor and my feet were like pins and needles. It was very strange. I thought, okay, I pinched a nerve or something on the boat fishing. Uh, but by the end of the week, that feeling had gone all the way up to my hips. And that was not a pinched nerve. Now, my mother's sister has MS and my father-in-law's twin brother had MS or had MS. So I'd seen it before. And my aunt is an artist just like my mother. So the two sisters are artists. My aunt always traveled the world. She did her painting. She taught, like she lived with MS. She was a good role model. So I thought, could this be MS? I was sent to a neurologist in Toronto. I asked him the question. I was very scared. My married life had just started and I was still quite young. And he said to me, no, no, I think you have a virus. And that's the worst thing doctors can tell you is you have a virus when, when they don't know what it is. He said, come back and see me in four or six weeks. So during that four to six weeks, I was nervous, uh, anxious, but my symptoms started to get better, which I now know is a symptom of, of MS when it starts. You have a flare up and then it, it remits. They call it relapsing remitting for that reason. So I was starting to get better. I didn't know that about MS. And I was rear-ended in a car accident. And when I went back to the doctor, the neurologist, I told him about this problem I had in my neck, which could also be a sign of MS. It was a pulling in my spinal cord. So he said, okay, I'm going to send you some for some tests for MS. And I said, well, you told me I don't have that. He goes, well, you were, you were ner- anxious and nervous. I didn't want to tell you that. That's the worst thing a doctor could do. You know, I tell my clients, I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. It may not be what you want to hear. So he said, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to send you to a neurosurgeon because you've got a herniated disc in your neck and it's compressing your spinal cord. It has to come out. So I, the, the specter of MS was raised again. On the same day, I was referred to a neurosurgeon. I went to the neurosurgeon who told me uh, he was a great, a great surgeon, uh, Charles Tatter in Toronto. He told me I didn't have an option. I should, I should get a second opinion, but I didn't have an option with six hour surgery to remove the disc in my neck, fuse my vertebrae. Hopefully that would relieve the compression and whatever scarring there was. So that's the one good thing my neurologist did was send me to a great neurosurgeon. 
So the day that he told me that, my wife and I, I just remember it. It was just, once he told me that, I was just, wow, really? This is just overwhelming. I had to go down to St. Mike's for MS tests on the same day. Uh, it was it was horrible time in my life. And I knew, people said the disc can explain all my symptoms, but it couldn't explain why I had a car accident and I still started getting better. It didn't, ex- I, I knew in the background that I had MS and I was scared to find out, but also it's a hard disease to, to um, diagnose. My healthcare was handled really poorly, in particular by one doctor. And I wasn't diagnosed for another six years. Uh, my symptoms were getting worse and worse. I was getting more disability. Um, so I missed six years of treatment. At the time when I was, when I thought I had MS, I wasn't diagnosed yet. There were four medicines out that were new that you can take to help delay the, the, prog- the progression. So I went six years without that treatment because people weren't honest with me. Um, so I can't get those six years back. I can't get the six years of damage to my spinal cord that, that's been done. What I am fortunate about with MS is I work with my brain and my MS doesn't affect my brain or my vision. So I've been able to, I've been able to work my career and have the career that I, that I wanted. And I've been able to do my photography. And how did you cope with it? Because I understand that when people finally come to terms with the reality of something as severe as MS, that they go through a lot of mental anguish, that their, their ability to, uh, and it could impact their relationships at home, their ability to work. I mean, how, how did that impact you as a young person, knowing that e- even though you had context, people in your family had had MS, that's a, you know, I'm not saying death sentence, but that's a very different sentence compared to how you might've thought you were going to live your life. You know, after my surgery and that was very successful, I was golfing again. I was playing baseball and still get some numbness and things that made me think, okay, the surgery was successful, but we got problems. And then we had our first child. That's when I started, actually before she was born, when I realized I probably have MS, I'm having a child. That's when my anxiety uh, kicked in. And uh, I got treated for it. Fortunately, I was able to get to a psychiatrist. I think there are too many, there's a shortage of mental health professionals in our society um, I was fortunate at the time to be able to go to a psychiatrist and and get treated. My daughter's now 28, so it's been 28 and a half years that I've been dealing with this, and I've been living my life and living a great life um, with good good healthcare uh, and great support at home. My wife has been she's a rock. Like you know, we were married for two years before I got MS. She didn't leave. She could have. She didn't, and she's been by my side ever since. I took up scuba diving because of her. I didn't, you know, I always wanted to do it. I never, I was too scared to do it. And my wife said, let's go away and you can get certified. And I got my certification, which I eventually went away again and got my advanced scuba diving certification. Uh, But that was because of her. And it was something I could do with MS, right? When you're in the water, you're weightless. I love nature. So, you know, when I'm down there, I'm just swimming with sharks and moray eels and barracuda. I just, I love it. So it's an amazing sport uh, for people, anyone with any ability, but especially someone with a disability is quite liberating. I started playing wheelchair tennis, about, well, before, so about two or three years before COVID hit. And that was also because of my wife. I used to play a lot of tennis and she saw um, 
information about a try it out day for wheelchair tennis. And I don't use a wheelchair, right? So I don't really know how to get around on one, but I went and tried it out and it was great. I was back on the court. Um, it was great exercise. I didn't look back. I started playing tennis. My MS has been harder at home than it has been at work, right? At work, I use my scooter, I get around. At home, there are things I can't do that my wife ends up doing and my kids. So I'm very fortunate to have amazing resources, amazingly committed and loving people at home. It's Tony Chapman. When we return, Peter is passionate about what he's doing to advocate for those across the country. And it's all about more accessibility, not disability. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. A shout out to RBC for investing to create more accessible spaces for both employees and clients. For example, flexible workstations that can be raised or lowered to accommodate wheelchairs, white noise to remove static for those with hearing aids, and a centralized resource to support employees with disabilities. Diversity and inclusion matter to RBC. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Peter Wiseman. He's a respected tax lawyer, advocate for people with disabilities that he likes to frame as unique abilities, and someone who's never left his passion for sports and the art behind. And how important has sports and photography and scuba diving been to you, not just to you as an individual, but part of the work you're doing advocating on behalf of people with disabilities? You know, my advocacy is, is it's um, partly about accessibility and the fact that people don't think about it, and I understand why, but people are going to end up with disabilities. You get older, right? You may have trouble walking. You Who knows what it will be? But suddenly you, you, your vision starts going. Everyone's going to need accommodations at some point. Um, so... I'm starting to get, and my wife's getting more actively involved in the accessibility side of advocacy. You know, in Ontario, we've got something called the, um, an act that's called the um, Ontario Disability Act, I'll call it. I don't think it should be called that. I think it should be just called the Ontario Access Act, right? It's, uh, it's, it's not about disability. It's about quality of life. It's about what people need. But my, most of my advocacy has been on the tax side. Because I've just seen, uh, just I've seen the tax system administered very poorly for people with disabilities. I happen to be a tax specialist with a disability, um, so you know I, I take the government to task and I try to be proactive. In 2005, I was um, appointed co-chair of a disability advisory committee to the Minister of Revenue, so I was dealing directly with CRA and how to. Uh, on a committee to, to try to help them better administer the disability tax credit. It was great. We lasted a year and a half before the government changed and we were canceled, but we continued on afterwards with the people at CRA because they were all committed to it. Through attrition, that group at CRA disappeared. And we ended up back in a world where people with disabilities were losing their advocates. They were being treated unfairly, in my opinion. In 2017, Lemby Buchanan, who was on the committee with me and her, her uh, husband's bipolar tax case, she and I started something called the Disability Tax Fairness Alliance. And that was because we just saw problems at CRA again. 
we had uh, we had written submissions to Minister Morneau at the time, uh, Minister Laboutier, and I pr- pr- apologize if I'm pronouncing her name incorrectly, and to Prime Minister Trudeau to reinstate the Disability Advisory Committee, which they didn't do. But in 2017, there was a consultant out there, disability consultant, and they've been all painted with this terrible brush, um, which is just wrong, who noticed that a lot of his clients with diabetes were being disallowed the credit, and they had been allowed it in the past. So he went to diabetes, uh, to the CRA, said, has the policy changed? And they said, no, no, it hasn't changed, but something just didn't seem right. So Diabetes Canada did an access to information request. And sure enough, there was a memo or there was a change in policy at CRA that they were not disclosing. You know, the government wasn't transparent even when they were asked. What came out of that was a press release with um, Diabetes Canada. And at the time, Pierre Polyev, they had a release about this. And within a week, the Disability Advisory Committee, they announced, the CRA announced they're reinstating it. As the past co-chair, as a tax specialist with a disability and someone who actually requested the reinstatement, you know, I offered my services. It's all volunteer. I didn't even get a response. The committee now is very different than it was when I was there. Uh, so I continue to advocate. The government came out in 2014, I think it was, with a, a disability, uh, with a promoters act, I'll call it. They came out with a fee cap or legislation to put a cap on what consultants could charge for helping people with the disability tax credit, which to be honest, I was in favor of. Because, you know, if you put a contingency cap, you sort of create your own free market within that group. Let's say it's a 25% cap. People are free to charge a fixed fee. They're charge, free to charge 15%. You, you create a little dynamic in there where people compete with each other. The legislation did not have the cap. The MPs all approved it unanimously because it was great virtue signaling. But can you imagine legislation to promote... Uh, Create a fee cap that doesn't have the amount of fee cap in the legislation. It, w- it was done by regulation. And regulations do not have to go through Parliament. The regulation didn't come out till seven years later, 2021. And you'll like this one. The fee cap was coming out as $100 per claim. You know, the government says, oh, it does, it takes nothing to do with disability tax credit claim. And for a lot of people with obvious disabilities, it's not a big deal. Changing tax returns uh, is more work than the government would, would acknowledge. But um, the $100 fee cap is going to put a whole industry out of business. And it's not a nefarious industry. You know, one or two bad apples doesn't spoil a whole bunch. But it's going to get rid of these advocates. So the CRA was moving ahead with this $100 fee cap. I wrote letters about it. I wrote submissions. And, uh, you know, eventually I became party to... Uh, an injunction application against the government of Canada to stop the fee cap from coming in until it can be, uh, until its uh, charter rights could be established. So we were successful in getting a petition. So the fee cap was put on the amounts on hold. And we're waiting now to go to court to deal with the charter issue. I'm, I'm curious, you know, it's fascinating me when I was researching the both the brothers. And I know there's two incredible sisters in the family. You know, your brother, Eric, who ends up, you know, he said he wasn't extreme homelessness, but he certainly lived on the street. He spent eight months on the top of a pool table and a whole gamut of stuff. And he ends up becoming an advocate for the homeless and using his artistic talents to showcase it. And you, you know, you got something no one asked for or whatever want, MS, and you're using that position. How 
much change do you think happens in society because people who have knocked on a doorstep, experienced pain, experienced a situation, have gone through a certain journey in life, are now coming on the other side saying, I'm going to do whatever I can to help others that come after me. Do you think that, are you two an anomaly or do you think that's just really where a lot of the forces of change are happening? I don't think we're anomalies. Uh, there are a lot of people in precarious situations or situations that they didn't, they wouldn't have wished for that are out there trying to make things better, not just for people with those afflictions, but better overall. You know, my brother, he has to fight his addiction every day and I have to fight my MS every day, my disability every day. And there are a lot of people out there with disabilities who are now advocating for better transportation, better access, um, people to realize that people with disabilities in business are very productive, that employees with disabilities are very loyal. Um, so there are a lot of advocates out there now. It's different than when I was first diagnosed. I was, you know, as, um, I was a partner in a firm, an accounting firm. Uh, I was diagnosed. My kids were, were very young for quite a while until, until I couldn't anymore. I blamed the changes in my abilities on my spinal cord injury. You know, lucky me. <laughs> I had a spinal cord injury I could use to sort of hide behind my MS, not because I wanted to hide from MS or disclosing it. I wanted to control the narrative. Through that process, I, I eventually ended up leaving the partnership I was in because I wasn't being treated fairly. They were telling me, Oh, Maybe you should go down to four days a week. Uh, my disability doesn't affect my work. It affects my home life. I had to see a vocational consultant as sort of a condition of continuing on as a partner. So, you know, I, I left. That was not a, that was a distasteful experience. I left and I am where I am now. And, you know, I said to Michael Kadesky, my partner uh, in, the, in my firm now, I said, Michael, you know, how do you see my disability and how it affects me? And he said, you know what, Peter? What I see is how it doesn't affect you. That was quite an amazing statement because I, I had never thought of it that way. Uh, I think just by doing what I do and continuing to be active, and I travel a lot with the family, with my wife, doing things despite having this horrible disease and disability, I'm hoping gives other people encouragement to know, hey, there's, there are things you can do. You know, scuba diving, it doesn't have to be an expensive sport. Wheelchair tennis is easy. Uh, even if you never used a wheelchair before. So there, there are a lot of things that you can do. My photography, I do from a scooter. I'm upset about my situation and I have good days and bad days. But um, And there are days that I don't want to get out of bed, but I do. And once I'm out of bed and doing stuff, I feel a lot better. So, you know, if I can mentor people, not just in my profession, but also in how to deal with productivity and quality of life with a disability, I, I do it. And sometimes I think I'm doing it inconspicuously just by doing what I do. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Age 30, Peter Wiseman had it all. A wonderful marriage, a child on the way, a successful career. He's a competitive athlete, but he wakes up one morning with pins and needles in his feet. And six years before he finds out, he'll spend the rest of his life dealing with MS. But he's refused to surrender. He's a wheelchair athlete, photographer, scuba diver, and he uses his creative mind to help people with disabilities deal with complex tax issues. And your mom, did she, uh, over the years, come to appreciate the fact that she had a tax expert in her family, or did she always sort of uh, introduce you last? <laughs> 
uh, it was pretty amazing. Anytime someone had a tax issue, it was good to know that Claire's son was around. So, uh, so you know, I think she got, she, I know she got used to it. And I think uh, at some point she realized I'm happy doing it and I'm not, you know, I'm in this sort of more creative area. So I think she was good with it eventually. And she's looking down now and looking at her son. Is, is she most proud of you as the tax expert or the photographer or this person that's made the most of their situation? Wow. Um, I think she would be proud of the overall package. Yeah. The, the overall package. I'm helping people. I'm secure. Um, and. I'm pursuing my art as a passion. You know, your children have grown up, their dad in a scooter. How have they coped? How has it impacted them? What are they doing with their life? You know, my kids, it was very important to me that my kids didn't feel strange and that their friends didn't feel strange about being around someone with a disability. That was one of the reasons I wanted to control the narrative. My oldest daughter, Shannon, is now... Um, getting placed for in, as a resident for as a family medicine doctor. Fortunately, in Toronto, she doesn't have to leave. And my younger daughter is in London, uh, spending a year teaching kids with autism. It's a really tough job. It's a really, really mentally and physically difficult job. Um, and both my kids have, always, have grown up with an interest in helping people, not just with physical disabilities, but developmental disabilities, intellectual disabilities, you know, one's gone into medicine. Uh, my younger daughter who's teaching right now, she wants to become a psychotherapist. So I, I'm, I'm happy that that's sort of the direction they went into or they went as opposed to, uh, sorry, and their friends also, uh, you know, I'm Peter, I'm not Mr. Wiseman, right? We, we're all friends. Um, and I'm really happy. That's probably the biggest accomplishment in my life. Um, what I did learn recently is my kids do feel upset for me, right? They do say, why you? I don't say why me much very uh, anymore, um, but my kids are saying, why him? He's such a nice guy. Um, and that's something that upsets me, but they've grown up with a father with a disability. And um, I think it's, it's impacted them in a positive way. Peter, I always end my shows with my three takeaways. And the first one came just a few minutes ago when your partner said, I don't see your disabilities. I just see what you're capable of. And I'm wondering if, if the world had that lens in life, if we just had that simple switch as opposed to looking at somebody in a wheelchair or seeing somebody struggle across the street or somebody is visually impaired. And we just thought about what they can do and what they are doing, what they're, I just think this world would be very different and we'd be so much more open minded. Second thing is I think that it's such an important point to make for all of us is that we're all have disabilities. And as we age, they're going to be more pronounced. And I think that taking the word disability off of policies and talk about accessibility and talk about opportunity and talk about positivity, I think would just be such powerful narrative. And the third thing is just, you're just such a calm, wonderful human being. You seem to be at such peace. And I can't imagine how, because if I was you who, you know, 
must dream even when you're on that wheelchair playing tennis, what it was like to, when you were a kid to just race across and get that cross court backhand that you're at peace with who you are and you're at peace with the cards that you've been dealt. And I just think that's so admirable because I, I don't know if I would have that courage or capability. And I, and I think that's something that's going to be so inspiring for people to listen, uh, to listen to because they might not be able to see you because it's a podcast or a radio show, but I think they can hear it in your voice. Well, I, I appreciate those, those three takeaways. They, uh, I never really thought about them that way. I'm, I'm really impressed with what you, what you, uh, got. Um, you know, I, I'm calm. I'm laid back. Sometimes when I'm dealing with uh, CRA or others, I, I get a bit animated, but. It doesn't mean I'm necessarily fully happy, but I'm, I'm, like you said, I'm dealing with the hand I was dealt. I wouldn't, I would like to reshuffle and get a new hand, but I can't. Thank you. Can I, can I bring up one more point? I'm sorry. Of course you can. You know, I, there are assistive devices now that make life with a disability a lot easier. You know, I started with no visible disability. I started using a cane. I started using two canes and eventually I used a scooter. But why did I use a scooter? Well, I couldn't walk very far with my kids on Halloween to go trick or treating. And we were going to Disney World. I said, I'm not going to be able to get around the park with them. And Disney World had, they call them electronic convenience vehicles. It's scooters, right? And I used it and it was, it gave me my life back. When I got home, I got a scooter. I've never looked back. I've got a scooter that folds up, fits in the trunk of my car. Um, I travel and uh, as soon as I saw how that assistive device could give me my life back and my quality of life, I didn't care how other people see it. From what I understand, people say, we don't really notice your scooter. And maybe it's because of my personality when I come in. But, you know, I, I embraced the technology that's out there. And I would encourage people not to be shy about it, not to feel stigmatized by using the technologies out there. All of that is nothing compared to the improvement in quality of life. It's great advice. And, you know, from a guy that hit his MS with his neck injury, you've come a long way in terms of uh, opening people's eyes that, uh, you know, the cards you dealt are the cards you got to play. Over the past three weeks, I've had a chance to share a tale of two brothers. The first was Eric Wiseman. If you haven't listened to the episode, it's wonderful, but it's, uh, you know, a kid that just had a bad upbringing didn't have the support he needed from his parents. And he went down the wrong path, became addicted to drugs, and often found himself homeless. Well, not only did he overcome his addiction, he ended up getting his PhD. He's an associate professor in the Department of Social Science at the University of New Brunswick. What is he an advocate for? What is he trying to raise the social conscious for? Homeless. Finding a way to get these people to have the skills they need and access to the affordable housing to get them off the streets and let them live their life with dignity. Let them feel that they have a purpose to serve other than trying to find a handout every night on the street. And this show with Peter Wiseman, I mean, Peter started connecting with me on LinkedIn and we've developed this sort of social media friendship that you often find, especially during COVID when you couldn't get face to face. And he's a wonderful photographer as well. And then I realized, because again, it was through social media and not face-to-face, that he has MS, his mobility that he's been battling. But he never surrendered to it. He refused to be a victim. He still wanted to be a father and a husband and a contributor to society. 
and he runs one of the most successful tax practices. And that's what this show is all about. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things. It's about people overcoming circumstances to chase their dreams, to change their world and ours for the better. It's about positivity and possibility to counter this world of negativity. And it's all possible for me because of the support of RBC. These shows matter to me and I hope they matter to you. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.